0: The other night on Compass, um, there was an episode about um, urban, an urban mission organisation called UNO, Urban Neighbours of Hope, that's what it that stands for. Um, and UNO you know, missionaries live radical lives, poverty amongst the urban poor. And um, the idea is that they take a, a voluntary um, uh, commitment, uh, an oath to live below the poverty line. So they aren't allowed to earn more than $650 a week Um, which is the amount which the Henderson Poverty Line says is um, poverty. Um, So (coughs) one of my schoolmates actually heads it up in Australia now, John Owen, he was in my class all going through high school, and um, he was featured on the Compass program the other night. Um, John and his wife Lisa, they um, live with their family um, in in the western suburbs in Sydney, and the Sydney Morning Herald actually did an article on them um, a few years ago, and they described them this way. They said, They're experts at unconditional love. Alcoholic mums, runaway kids, petty thieves. Everyone's welcome at the Owens' home. A floor-bedroom brick house that for the past five years has been equal Park's street kitchen and safe house, as well as a home for their daughters, Kshama, who's aged eight, and Kira, aged seven. And Tim Elliott, who's the journalist, also wrote wrote this. He said, It's a fair bet that if Jesus Christ were around today, he'd be doing what the Owens are doing in Mount Droid. They'd feed the poor and house the homeless. They lead the lost and counsel the conflicted. So, see, John and Lisa, they're living this life of complete selflessness. And why do they do it? You might ask. Um, I, I, I know that's really hard for them at times, living amongst drug addicts and people with men, you know, um, uh, mental problems and you know, aggression and all that kind of thing. Um, people who are often ungrateful, but they do it because they also get a lot of joy out of it and they're doing it because they're serving Jesus. And um, John wrote a book about this called "Muddy Spirituality, which is a good book. It's interesting, some, some Christians had this thought, they, they had this bit of a conspiracy theory and they say, all the media is against the church, aren't they? The media, especially the ABC and the Fairfax, they're all against the church. But um, in this case, I just quoted the ABC and, and Fairfax, and they, they looked at Jono and, and Uno you know, and their mission, both in Australia and also in Thailand, and um, they praised that, that ministry. Um, and this is because... I think, when Christians show real practical love, sacrificial love, it's not just kind of a little bit of love, but a lot of love, the people with, um, who are observing it on the outside are blown away. They're taken aback. The church becomes gloriously attractive. Um, as the, the great 20th century American poet Hugh Anthony Craig III wrote these very poignant words. You don't need money, don't take fame, don't need no credit card to ride on this train. It's strong it's sudden it's cruel sometimes, but it might just save your life. That's the power of love. That's human Laws in the news. That's his real name. That's what we're gonna talk about. There is actually a real power in love. Sorry, that was a joke. It's got no laughs, that's all right. <laughs> Sunday morning. I wrote it in nervously and I thought no one's gonna laugh. No, they might laugh, anyway. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't. I should trust my instincts. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Campbell might. That's good. Um, We're going to talk about the the power of love this morning. Now, the thing is, the Thessalonian church were actually really good at love. Um, And Paul says, we don't actually really need to write about this, he says in verse 9. But he does anyway, because he wants them to get even better at it. Um, And the type of love that he talks about is the kind of Philadelphia love from the Greek, meaning brotherly love, like a family intimacy. Um, The mutual love that exists between Christians, male and female, is supposed to be like a family. And this is what he's talking about here. And in Greco-Roman society, um, it was prized, this kind of brotherly love. That society really wanted that. But Paul's saying here, you guys have actually got this. So this is an encouragement as part of the letter. Um, And he says, you've got it because you've been taught by God. It's like this this kind of spiritual learning that you've had. And I I think it's really amazing that Paul actually invented a word to say that you've been taught by God. Anthony, can look it up later. Um, But actually, it's the first time this word has been ever used um, in the Bible. And and, and we can't find it anywhere else in, in the words, this idea of being taught by God. It's like the Holy Spirit has taught you this. There's something supernatural that's got in your church and you have really learnt love. He's um, taught them brotherly love, even to the point where all the other churches in the area, in Macedonia, know about this. They've experienced your love. Um, churches in Philippia, Berea, possibly, um, and Amphipolis and Ap- Ap- Apollonia. They experienced evangelistic activity, but they also experienced financial generosity, um, hospitality. And also, we know um, Paul talks about it elsewhere, um, that there were a lot of poor in that area, poor Christians, and that um, probably what's going on is the church in Thessalonica has been a supporter of the poor as well. And as we think about what it means to be a church that shows real practical love, I I do want to say I want us to be, um, as a Mary Creek, a church that's known for this, when we were the recipients of love, we were the recipients of, from St. Hilary, $70,000 to get this church off the ground, and administration support that's ongoing, and prayer. Um, You know, that is practical love, not just some kind of motherhood statement oh, we love you guys, you know, whatever. No, it's actually love with flesh on it, you know. Um, And so I want us to be known as a church just like that for surrounding churches. And that's one of the reasons why I want to get the church planning trust fund off the ground because I think that's a really practical way we can do that so we can fund other churches. So Paul says, he opens his section by saying, you're really good at this love. You're known about it, you're known for it in Macedonia, but I want you to do it more and more. Don't, don't give up. Don't become complacent about this. Well, let's have a look at what he really means by practical love because um, we've got to put some meat on the bones here. First of all, he starts off by saying in verse 11, don't be an unnecessary burden to other people and mind your own business. Look at verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and you should mind your own business. And by a quiet life, he doesn't mean just be kind of doing nothing much with your life and, and taking it easy or, or being an introvert and staying at home at night. He means um, uh, don't be a person that is not you know, meddling with other people and not being a burden on other people. Um, it's, it's quite practical um, in your relationships with each other within the church and also externally with people outside the church. Because many of these people in this church would have been engaged um, possibly in the public sphere. Some of them might have worked in public office. Some of them might have got involved in the citizen assembly where they could debate various political issues. Um, some of them might have worked in the marketplace. Some operated in the public sphere um, as evangelists as well. Um, and he's saying, you know, just don't, don't be a burden on, on other people. Don't be a busybody. And remember what Paul writes in Titus um, 3, 1-2, to he says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. But also this works for inside the church as well. Okay? It's a simple idea, and a lot of what I'm going to say this morning is very simple to understand, hard to live out. Um, So, you know, when you're relating internally within the church, um, make sure that you're not an unnecessary burden on each other. Um, Do your part. Be self-sufficient as much as you can. um, And don't be a busybody. busybody. This idea of being a busybody was a kind of a thing in in this time in history. And nobody liked busybodies. And nobody still likes busybodies. The Jewish philosopher... Philo of Alexandria describes a busybody as an unattractive person like this. He says, he's a vulgar man who spends his day meddling, running around in public, in theatres, tribunals, councils and assemblies, meetings and consultations of all sorts. He prattles on without moderation, fruitless to no end. He confuses and stirs up everything, mingling truth with falsehood, the spoken with the unspoken, the private with the public the sacred with the profane, the serious with the ridiculous, not having learning uh, to remain quiet, which is the ideal when the situation calls for it. And he pricks up his ears in an excess of bustling busyness. Good description of what not to be. And Paul's saying, what he's saying is it comes out of his general view of how not to be as a Christian. Not being an annoying person. <laughs> It Just loves to disturb others. So it's a good principle for us to live by as, as Christians, we um, can be annoying with each other and with people outside the church. So I've thought of some, some tips. and I, I discovered as I was singing through this, the Bible is full of instructions of how not to be annoying. So it says, don't, "Don't talk about stuff that you don't know about. This just makes you look foolish and, and confirms everyone's worst nightmare about Christians. Um, And this specifically relates to social media. So don't be one of those Christians that just is hammering other people on social media, um, getting caught up in those debates online about religion versus the world, being the moral police online. You know, that's just not a good look for the Christians. Try and use your, if you're gonna go on social media, use it to make positive comments, or even neutral comments, I guess. Also, um, the Bible talks about this as well. um, don't be a bitch. So about bitching out church people or about colleagues at the, in your workplace. Bitching can be done subtly. You know, you talk about people in a kind of, a, you know, a, with a quiet voice and under your breath, but actually what you're doing is you're trying to cut them down. That's being a busybody. And, and do what you say you're going to do. Our Bible is big on that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be one of those annoying Christians who say you're going to come to something and then you don't appear. This is all very basic and simple sort of practical life stuff. But it's all part of what Paul's talking about in terms of practical love. How to excel more and more in your love for one another. The second thing he says is try your best to get a paid job. (laughs) Verse 11b. Work with your hands just as we told you. And he's literally talking about manual labour here because it was something they could all do. There were people who were just sitting around doing nothing, idle in the church, um, then they could try and get a job and do their bit. He isn't saying that those who are hindered from work should feel guilty about it. He's not saying, you know, if there's there's low employment and you can't find a job, then you should feel guilty. He's not saying that. He's not saying if you're sick or injured and you can't work, that you should feel ashamed of yourself. But he's saying, do your very best, Don't be a parasite on your church community. Don't take advantage of others' generosity. Get your hands dirty, everyone. Work up a sweat. If you're capable of obtaining employment, don't scum off your Christian brothers and sisters who are generous and know that they should love you by by serving you. Be self-supporting as much as you can and be a contributing member of the church, which is the very thing he had done in his uh, mission founding work. He'd always done his best to work hard and not be um, a burden on other people. We read that in the first chapter, didn't we? Now, you want to think about this. Why are people being idle in the church in Thessalonica? I'm not exactly sure, but we've got an idea. Why are people doing nothing with their day? Um, For some of them, it was theologically driven, believe it or not, we think. Um, and, And the idea is that we can tell by the, the, this letter and the second letter to the church in Thessalonica that there was a strong emphasis on Jesus returning soon in this church. And so what seems to happen is that quite a few of the Christians are thinking, well, Jesus is about to return, so what's the, bother, what's the point in working? You know, why don't we just stop what we're doing and just wait for him to return and focus on preaching the gospel and um, doing church activities but not actually working this was a church that um, was waiting for it to happen at any moment. Now you might think that's weird, but there's been churches recently doing the same thing in Korea. In the '90s, there was this the dummy Mission that um, you know it had about 300 churches, um, and and its leader Lee Jung Rim had predicted that um, Jesus was going to return on um, October the 28th, 1992, and so about 20,000 of his followers sold all their Houses and um, you know, emptied their bank accounts, quit their jobs, but in the end, Jesus didn't return on that date because Jesus said that you won't know when I'm going to return, so I don't know what he was thinking. And uh, the pastor was charged by the courts in Korea for um, extorting millions of dollars in 2011. I, when I was in. Um, in America. I saw Harold, what Harold Campington, did, who was also a pastor, a radio, and a radio broadcaster, Christian radio broadcaster, had predicted that Jesus would return on May twenty-first, two thousand and eleven, and there were all these people that followed him and sold their possessions and quit their jobs and and um, stopped saving money and just engaged in full-time preaching, uh, and uh, but didn't sort of work anymore, didn't earn any money, and sort of. We're just sort of idle, in in a sense. Uh, that Christians have got the capacity to do this when we follow a strange teaching. Now I have not got this worry for our church. You know, I don't think we're about to be doing that. We're not likely to be kind of uh, hanging on the edge of our seats. Um, and selling the our possessions because we've got this heightened expectation for Jesus' return. I think we need to have a healthy expectation for it, and I think we probably do have a healthy expectation. If we're probably a bit on the other side of the coin, maybe we don't expect him to return, but we should. The point is, what do we do, though? What what is the danger for us? (coughs) What is the thing that could cause us to become maybe idle or, you know, something that... What is the the bad idea, the bad theology that we might have that might cause us to not be loving towards one another? Because that's ultimately what this is about. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, for Western Christians in 2015, especially maybe in Merry Creek, one of the big traps could be being self-obsessed. That's more of a danger for 21st century Christians. We think we're more important than everyone else, and this can manifest in all kinds of subtle ways, it's not that you necessarily declare that you're more important than everyone else. It's not that you actually even say it out loud. But it, you can see it in the way you behave. Maybe you don't engage with other people at church. You Maybe you don't offer to serve other people at church. Uh, maybe you only want to talk to the people who are in your closest friendship circles. But in Philippians 2 verse 3, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Remind yourself that you're not the most important person in the world. This is our danger, this kind of thing. Not idleness that comes from a heightened expectation of Jesus' return, but perhaps idleness that comes from self-obsession. You're part of a bigger story uh, with others, with God, and you're not the center of that story. God is at the center of that story. And when we sacrificially and humbly love and serve others in God, we will find life. What inspires people about the "you know" missionaries is that they have opted out of this Western narrative that you are the most important person in the world and everything should be about you. They've opted out of that. Be inspired by people like the you know people, the, the hardcore missionaries, but we don't have to necessarily live like them. We can do it here, today, in our own context. We can reorientate our life towards serving others. We can use our vocation in whatever way we can to bring the kingdom of God to our patch in the world. We can share our possessions with others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's how we're going to see practical love demonstrated in our church isn't it? From self to others. And this is a good reminder for us as we think about financial giving. Our responsibility to contribute to the church to the resources of the church if we have the capacity to give we should give. And why not? And if we're not giving, it, it might be, if we've got the capacity to give and we're not giving, it might be that we're saying to ourselves that, um, well, other people can just carry the load and I'm not going to carry the load. But financial giving at church is a way to do practical. love. It's very, very, very basic. Not necessarily easy to do, though, is it? We don't need to be urged to go and get a job like Paul's urging the Thessalonians. We need to be urged to then use the resources God's given us to serve the rest of the community. Gear your life towards serving others with your money. This is one way you can grow more and more in this love that Paul's talking about. So what's the end result of all this? What's the end result? Look at verse 12. Do all this so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone, anybody. This is actually kind of a church strategy of love. That's what this is. He's saying, you want your church to grow and be healthy, then live in a way that's demonstrating practical love to each other and to outsiders. Don't be a busybody, don't be annoying. Um, you know, work and contribute. We might not have to have the same kind of radical action of a UNO missionary, although you might want to do that. But we can have our own merry Creek flavour of attractive love. A community of people who take responsibility to do their part, who serve each other genuinely. But let me finish... Um, let me finish with a prayer that's based on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31-33. to 33. Let's pray. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we pray that we can do it all for the glory of God. And we pray that we will not cause anyone to stumble, whether people from Mary Creek or people in our family or friends or colleagues. May we be disciples that are not seeking our own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Amen.